Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. Good morning. How are you guys? You good? Um, my name is Roy. I get the, the privilege of being a pastor here. And I, I, and I say that not just like out of obligation that I get the privilege. I, I feel super privileged that God would entrust me with being part of the leadership of this church and to anoint me to speak. And um, I just, I love what God does in the hearts and lives of people. And you get, you get to see it. You get to see people that come and, and they, they don't know who they are because they haven't discovered who he says they are. And they've tried to find themselves in so many different ways. And everywhere they've looked has been a dead end. It, it promised so much at the beginning. It looked so good at the beginning. There was so much promise of, of something there. But the longer they pursued it, the more they found themselves back in that familiar place of feeling empty. Because there's nothing that will leave us feeling fulfilled until we discover the one who created us to fulfill us. And you get to see people come to know that and actually believe that, start to believe that this gospel is true, not just for other people, but for them. Start to see that this, this light starting to shine in their eyes as they start to, to come alive to the promises of God over their life. And when you hear the word, all of a sudden it's no longer just some generic word for everybody, but it's actually God speaking to me. And it's true about me. And it's, it's actually the, the greatest truth that I could ever discover. And it's, it's just amazing to see that. Now, I was thinking this week a lot about the... Um, I had another message to get to this morning, and I innocently started on a passage that was getting to the point that I was prepared to make, and along the way, God kind of arrested me and sent me in a different direction. I'm going to, I'm going to try that again this Sunday, or this service, we'll see what happens, but, um, because it's an awesome word, and I'll give it sometime if I don't get it today, but, um, but I was thinking this week a lot about the, the, the seed and the soil, like Dylan just talked about a second ago, of, of, you know, Jesus gives this parable, and he, and he says, like, this parable is important. When the disciples come to him, they say, you know, what does this mean? He says, listen, if you don't get this, you won't understand anything else. This is important. You have to understand this. And he starts explaining to them the parable of the sower. You know, it says that a sower went forth, and he sowed seed, and some fell on rocky ground, and, and some fell onto shallow ground, and some fell, and thorns, it started to grow up, and thorns choked it, and others fell on good soil, and it produced fruit, and so he's talking to his disciples, and he's telling them the, the, the meaning behind this. And he says to them, he says, the seed is the word of God. The seed's the word. And when, so when he's making sure that, that they understand that what he's talking about in this parable isn't an actual seed, but that's just a story he used to explain something to them. And he says the, the, the seed is the word. So, so it struck me as I was thinking this week of like, the problem was never with the seed. When you, when you take a, a, an apple seed and you place it into the ground, that apple seed contains everything it needs to reproduce itself. Everything is contained within that seed. And it's not the seed, it's the soil that was the issue. And I was just thinking about how, like, how important it is that, that we actually tend the garden of our heart because we're the only ones that can actually, with the, with the help of the Holy Spirit, search our hearts and, and, and we know what's in our heart. 
Like, you know what's in your heart. When, the Holy, when you ask the Holy Spirit, search me, God, and see if there's anything in me that's unpleasing to you. God, see if there's any thoughts. Because the truth of the matter is, is a lot of times when the word comes forth, it confronts something that maybe we believed for our entire lives. And suddenly we have to repent. Metanoia changed the way that we think because the way that we thought was inspired by something other than the truth of God's word. Sometimes it's traditions, you know, they get passed down. Jesus said that this, the, the word of God, it says that he exalts this above even his own name, that he said his word even above his own name. It's so powerful. It says he can cut and divide and, and separate spirit and soul. And, 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 and yet this most powerful thing in the world falls on soil And a tree springs up, but there's no depth. And when the sun comes, it scorches, and the tree withers and dies. And the problem wasn't with the seed. The problem wasn't with the word. The problem was in the soil, What did I do with the word that God gave me? What did I do with what I read in Scripture? When I read these things in the Bible and I read the truth that God's laid out for me in Scripture, when I hear it spoke, when when other people speak into my life the truth of God's word, do I actually make room inside of my heart so that it actually changes me and changes the way that I think and now I adjust the way that I live to what his word says rather than trying to make his word adjust to what I've experienced in life or the way that I choose to live? Because that's a hard reality that comes when we hear a truth that confronts a way that we've lived, a pattern or a habit of our lives. And what we'll want to do if we're not careful is justify why that word can't mean that or why it can't mean that for me. And that goes both ways. It's the good and the bad. Like sometimes we'll disqualify ourselves when we hear promises of God's word because we think, well, yeah, but, and we'll fill in the blank with the reason that we would see why, why that couldn't be true about us. As if when God spoke that word over your life, he forgot about that thing that you were going to do. And how many people have their lives more shaped by what was done or what wasn't done rather than what was done by Jesus on the cross? I know no one in here, but the, the people on podcasts, they sometimes are tempted to be a product of what was done to them or not done for them more than what Jesus accomplished on the cross and the truth of his word that's supposed to go into our hearts and actually produce fruit and change us. And see, the enemy knows this. That's why he's after the word. That's why the word will be tested. Jesus, when he was explaining this to the, to the, to the disciples, he said, he said that, that the one who, who when he, uh, it sprung up, but there was no room, he said when, when persecution and affliction came because of the word, because it had no depth, it had no root, it withered and died. Why did the affliction and persecution come? It came because of the word. Don't be surprised if when the word actually is received into the soil of your heart, if affliction and persecution, if something doesn't come to try to snatch or steal or change or get you to think, well, I guess that wasn't for me or I guess God didn't or maybe he didn't because I, this is what God said, but then something in my life that I experienced right away after that. It's crazy how fast it happens. Jesus is, is on the earth for, for 30 years. He comes and he gets baptized by God, I mean by John the Baptist, and it says a voice booms from heaven. This wasn't a whisper. And sometimes it's the still small voice 
And sometimes it's a voice and the people around say it was thunder. Some people, it was so loud, yet there was no content to it because they didn't have ears to hear. And so they said, it was thunder. And then there were others who who understood there was content to it, but maybe didn't quite understand who was speaking. And so they said, it was the voice of an angel. And then there's Jesus, who knows exactly who's speaking, and exactly what's being said. He says, this was the Father. But this booming voice declares over Jesus, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. I want to tell you that that was for Jesus' sake as well as the people who were there's sake. See, Jesus knew who he is, right? He knows who he is. He, he tells his parents when he's 12 years old, they can't find him. They go find him in, the, in, the, in the, the sanctuary, in the synagogue. And he says, didn't you know that I would be about my father's business? It's written that zeal for his house would consume me. He says, listen, you guys, this is who I am. He understands he's God's son. When Mary, when Mary comes to him at the, at the, at the um, wedding and says, Jesus, you know, they've ran out of wine, and I'd love for you to do something. He says, well, my time has not yet come. He knows who he is, and he knows where he is in his timeline. Like, he understands who he is. It's not as if God was making this revelation to him that Jesus kind of stumbled through life foggily and didn't understand who he was, and now when God spoke, all of a sudden now he's like, oh my gosh, I'm his son. But it's because God wanted him to be so established in that because he's getting ready to head out and do what God put him on the earth to do. And everything in hell and on the earth is going to come against him becoming who God spoke that he was. And listen to what happens. So this, has Jesus ever been asked if you're the son of God at this point? No. Not that it's recorded and I believe if it would have happened it would have been significant enough it would have been recorded. He's never been asked before if you're the son of God. But God speaks and declares for all of heaven and all the spiritual realms to hear, this is my son. The very next voice he hears. The voice of the enemy in the wilderness. What's the very first thing he says to him? If you are the son of God. Tell these stones. The stones into bread thing was just a ploy. That's just a, a reason to bring into question. What he's really after is the word that was spoken. He wants to snatch that word. He wants to see if that word will be established in Jesus. Or if Jesus would go, yeah, I don't, why am I so hungry after 40 days if I'm really the son of God? If Maybe he could get him to question. It's what he's after. He's after that word. Don't be surprised. In fact, you can actually take comfort when you receive the word of God into your life and it starts to change the way that you think and the way that you live. Because until it changes the way that you live, it doesn't matter to anybody on the outside. It matters to you because you're being changed from the inside. But when it starts to actually manifest in who you are and the way you live your life, be ready for the enemy to come to try to snatch the word from you because now he's aware there's something going on and he realizes the easiest time to get that thing is when it's infancy, when it's young. So the very first thing he does to Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I gotta go get that word. I have to snatch that word from him. I have to bring it into question. I have to do something. Because right now it's just a seed. It started to poke its little head above ground. So he comes to him, and the very first thing he says, if you're the son of God. You, you'll hear it. Because you'll, you'll, you'll learn truth 
that will start to actually change the way that you live, and then you'll hear the questions. Well, if that's true, then how come? Just try it. Start declaring just the simple word of God to people. When you have a conversation with someone, declare what God has spoken and watch the enemy raise his head in anger and say, well, if that's true, then how come? And try to bring into question the very word of God. Why? Because he understands something. The easiest time to pick an oak tree is when it first sprouts above the ground. You think about this. You go outside and you take an oak acorn. It has everything inside of that acorn to reproduce the tree that it came from. Remember which tree you're a product of. You're not a product if you're born again of that first tree where Adam ate. You're a product of that second tree where Christ hung, bled, died, and rose again. You eat of that fruit. That's why Jesus said, if anyone would, would, would want to be part of me, he'd have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, the first time that man ruined everything, he ate the fruit of a tree and gave authority over to the enemy. The next time to make everything right, man will now eat the fruit of another tree because Jesus is the first fruit of God who hangs on a tree. Remember, cursed is every man who hangs upon a tree. He's the first fruits of God hanging upon a tree saying, eat of me. I'll make all things right. I'll restore everything. I'll redeem everything. And so you take that acorn, you plant it, it has everything inside of it to reproduce the tree that it came from. And when it's first in its infancy, it's under the ground, and it's kind of putting out little roots, and there's this little thing that comes out of it. And no one can see it at first. No one. And as long as it's underground in its infancy, Right when that word first comes into your heart and nothing's different, probably not going to be a lot of test on it. Because for one, the enemy has seen so many people walk away from a church service, from a time alone with God, from reading their Bible with a word, and then it not do anything in their life and it never bear fruit. So he's not going to waste his time at first. Because he thinks you're like everybody else who hears the word but isn't a doer of the word, which is why James said, don't be hearers only of the word, but be doers also. But when it starts to change the way that you live, all of a sudden, that little acorn has sprouted. And there's now something visible on the surface that proves what was happening underneath. And you realize that you could go outside when that little sprout comes up and you could reach down with two fingers. You could grab hold of that little oak tree and you could pull it from the ground. But you let it grow. You let it get sun, water, fed. Let it put down roots. Let the wind blowing against it not uproot it, but actually make it send out its roots a little bit stronger and a little bit deeper. Let it get what it needs to get from God. You let it start to receive that sun and receive that water. And let it grow. Give it some time. Let it start to mature. And now all of a sudden, you might have a hard time getting it out of the ground with two hands. Let it grow long enough and you could gather as many people as you want. You could grab your arms around that oak tree. You could try to rip it from the ground and it's not going anywhere because it's been firmly established. That's what we're called to be. It says they will be like oaks of righteousness, meaning what? He, if he intends for you and I to be established in who we are in him, in the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, if understanding that he didn't come to earth and act sinful so that you could act righteous. It's not about an act. 
He says he became sin so that you may become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He became something so that you could become something else. It has nothing to do with acting. It has everything to do with becoming and being established and letting that word actually establish itself in your heart and put down roots and start to change who you are. So when the enemy comes after that word gets established in your heart and you start actually walking and living differently, it starts to change the way that you see. Your eye now has become single. You have one answer now. We have so many problems because we have so many answers. Get rid of so many of our answers and watch the problems go away. There's a simple answer. His name is Jesus. When he said it's finished, he didn't say it's finished except for fill in the blank with your favorite thing that you want to struggle with. I don't want to struggle with it. Then stop struggling with it. Surrender it to him and watch him actually come. But it will take you actually yielding to his lordship, which means I'm no longer alive for me. I'm alive for you, which means I no longer do what I feel like in a moment. I do what I know you've called me to for a lifetime. Even when you don't want to. Especially when you don't want to. Because the more I say no when I want to, the less I want to. And the more it starts to become not something I do, but who I am. And that little oak tree starts to sprout a branch. And now it's not just this little shoot anymore. It's got a couple branches. Now it's really attracted the attention of the enemy because he sees something's being established. Don't be shocked when he shows up. In fact, you can let that encourage you and you can actually start talking to him and you can challenge him if you want to and say, I know why you're here. You're here because you see the difference in my life that the word's in and you're here for the word. Guess what? It's not going to happen. You're too late. There's already deep roots in good soil and you can push and pull on my tree and all you're going to do is add character make me more interesting. You think about this, the very thing that destroys one tree actually gives character to another. As the wind blows on these trees, it puts its roots down deeper and deeper and deeper because it becomes more and more secure because it's anchored in something greater than what's going on around it. And so what is destroying one tree is actually making the other one more like him and making it more and more established. And you decide what happens when the winds of life blow against you. You decide if it makes you put your roots down deeper and say, you know what, even though there's a windstorm, and maybe even especially because there's a windstorm, I'm going to anchor my soul even deeper in the truth of God's word. I'm going to keep putting down roots because there's something he's doing inside of me that is scaring the enemy. And if he's coming this hard against it, I can't wait until the fruit starts to appear on the tree. Come on. You can, listen, listen, this is not like an emotional thing. You can do this. You can choose this. And every single day, you get to decide, are my roots going deeper and am I becoming more established in truth? Or am I on my way to being tipped over by the next wind that blows? Because there's nothing wrong with the seed. As for God, his ways are perfect. He's not a man that he should lie. The seed is never in question. It's always about the soil. Always. And so he shows up. And he tempts Jesus. And he tries in every way that he has got to man before. Through what they see. Through wanting to be known. Pride of life. Lust of flesh. Lust of the eyes. What he sees. What he wants. His ego. I'll make everyone bow down to you. All these kingdoms are mine. I'll give them to you. Why? Because every man that he's come to before that has always given in. 
To him, it wasn't a question of whether Jesus would give in or not. It was what would it take to get Jesus to give in. You realize he thinks the same thing about you and I. In his mind, it's not a question of whether you'll sell. It's what, what the price will be. He doesn't believe that you really believe what you say. That's why he comes and tries to take the word. If he knew that you believed it and really believed that you believed it, he wouldn't come after it. He'd waste it. It'd be a waste of his time. He'd go after it somewhere else. He doesn't think that any of us actually believe the things that we say we believe. He thinks just like Job. Well, of course he says that because look how things are going. But when you're standing in the middle of a storm and the wind's blowing and he comes and tries to take the seed and you put your roots down a little bit deeper and you just smile at him and say, keep pulling. He starts to realize something. Mm. There's truth there. And to try a different tactic. But every time you manifest the nature and the presence of Jesus in the middle of a storm, the kingdom wins. Your roots go a little deeper. And all of a sudden, you start, you start growing these branches, and these leaves start to show up on on your, on your branches. And it says that, that, that when it's talking about the people of God, it says that they will be like the cedars that actually have growing on the banks of a river whose roots go down deep into water so that in a time of drought, they won't fade. Meaning what? You're not going to just live and die with what's going on around you like every other tree that's roots are just shallow on the surface. And in times of rain, this thing looks amazing and it's green and it's tall and it's got branches everywhere. But the first time that there's a drought, it looks like every other tree because it was only doing good as the circumstances around it. No, no, he said, you will be like those who actually have their roots down deep, whose roots actually get down into the stream so that when there's a drought going on, you not only don't turn green, you have some shade to offer for the other trees, little saplings around. Because it's always his, his goal to make you into a mature representation of him so that you then can sprout these branches and pop out these leaves and provide shade and shelter and nourishment. And then one day, all of a sudden, you realize, ooh, there's acorns growing on my branches. Yet suddenly the DNA of what's inside of me is now being reproduced. And it's reproducing itself in others. See, that's the whole goal of why you're here. You're here to reproduce the image of God as he reproduces his image inside of you. That's it. You're here to know him. Why? So that you can reproduce him. Think about this. Why did Satan want Eve to eat the fruit? Because inside of that fruit there was a seed that would reproduce after its own kind. The Bible says this. It says every seed reproduces after its own kind. Inside that fruit was a seed that would reproduce itself after its own kind. That's why every man that was born was born into sin because of the sin of the first Adam, because that seed continued to reproduce itself inside of every single person that was born. That's why Jesus had to be the seed of a woman. God's so brilliant. In Genesis, he declares this. He says, there's one coming, the seed of a woman, not the seed of a man. Why? Because that sin of Adam wouldn't be reproduced inside of him. He'd be fathered by the Holy Spirit, so he'd actually be born perfect, not born into sin. That way he could actually be the spotless lamb who was worthy of being a sacrifice for the sin of humanity. It's in your Bible. It's in mine. I read it. He's not, God's, you realize when you read the word, it's not like this thing where it's, it's, these words are in there just to make the Bible a little bit longer. So, you know, well, woman's a little longer than man, so I'll say the seed of a woman. That way I look really smart because my Bible will be this much longer. No, it's in there for a reason. If he said he's coming, the seed of a woman, 
That meant what? He wouldn't be the result of being reproduced by a man. Man would have no part. Adam would have no part in the reproduction of Jesus Christ. He would be fathered by the Holy Spirit coming upon a virgin who was pure and spotless. That way he could actually be a a, a spotless lamb that was worthy of being a sacrifice so that he wasn't born into sin. He was born into righteousness so that he could become sin. So that we who are born into sin could actually become righteous. Come on, it's in there. I promise you. This is why you're alive. And every single day, something is reproducing itself inside of you. You don't get to choose whether or not something's reproducing inside of you, but you do get to choose what's being reproduced. You don't get to choose whether or not you're going to look more like him or less like him. You, you get to choose whether you're going to look more like him or less like him, but you don't get to choose neither. There's no neutral. You can't say, well, today, God, I'm just going to take a day off, and this kingdom's not going to affect me, and that kingdom's not going to affect me. I'm just going to stay in neutral today. In fact, for the next year, I'm just going to stay neutral. No, no. Every single day, you're becoming more like the one who you are actually giving your time and your attention to. And both kingdoms are fighting for your attention. Both kingdoms want to reproduce themselves inside of you. So he knows if I can get him to eat the fruit, that seed gets it. Because inside of every piece of fruit is a seed that reproduces after its own kind. So Jesus comes and says to people that have no idea what he's talking about, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. What's he saying? You need to take a bite from the fruit. Remember, he's the first fruit of God. He hangs on a tree. For He became the curse of the law, for it is written, cursed is every man who hangs upon a tree. So take, look, the Bible's not just saying these things flowery, so you're like, wow, what a, what, a, what a cool way of writing that. It's actually trying to tell us something. It's saying that Jesus is the fruit of God who hangs upon a tree, and the fruit said, if you take a bite of me, you'll never die. You'll, always, you'll live forever. Why? What was he saying? He's saying, listen, you took a bite of the first tree, and that sin seed reproduced itself inside of you, leading to death because the wages of sin is death. But if you would take a bite of this fruit, my fruit, me, that hangs upon this tree, I'll reproduce myself inside of you, leading to life and to righteousness. That's all he wants to do is get the seed inside of you so that it could begin to reproduce itself after its own kind. And there's no problem with the seed. Ever. We'll turn into your Bibles real quick. We'll make it official. I quote a lot of scripture when I preach. I just don't always give the address. And I'm sorry for that, but I would... It would really, honestly, I feel like it would just slow me down so much to have to try to give the address and the thing. And not most of the time, what I'm saying is just what God's bringing back to my memory. And I guess I just haven't really memorized the numbers as well as I probably should. But, but it's all in there, I promise. And I promise you, I will do my best to never stand up here and cherry pick verses to try to say something that the Bible isn't, ever. I'll always try to give you the context of it and always try to give you the, the meaning of it. Because, listen, you, you can take verses and you can pick, you know, you copy and paste verses from different places in the Bible. You can make the Bible say crazy things. You know, the example we give is, like, David looked, saw Bathsheba and lusted, and David was a man after God's own heart. And you take those verses and you put them together, and it sounds like David being caught up in lust over another man's wife was following the heart of God. You've got to make sure that you're giving context, and that you're not picking and choosing and slapping them together to try to make it mean something that you want it to mean. So I said, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman who can rightly divide the word of truth. You need to be able to actually know what the word is saying and be able to divide what you've heard and what he said. That's what Jesus is doing all the time. You've heard, you've heard it said, but I say. What's he doing? He's dividing. 
the word. He's saying, this is what you've heard. Now this is what I say. Make sure that you live your life based on what I say, not what you've heard. And if what you've heard contradicts what I've said, then change the way you think and adjust it to what I've said. Don't try to make what I've said change to adjust to what you've heard or what you've experienced. Yeah, but listen, don't ever put a yeah, but after the scripture. You could make, end up making a yeah, but out of yourself. I was so, so horrible. I never do those corny jokes. It came into my head and I couldn't help myself. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 19. I was innocently reading this verse because I really wanted to talk about how the past has no authority over who you are in the present. You, you realize that, that I, I mean this, in the church today, and this is not to scold, this is just a truth. In the church today, there are many people whose present day is being defined more by what was done or wasn't done to them in their past than by what Christ did and what Christ has said about who they are. And you realize that most of the time it's happening with good intention? Do you realize that most of the stuff that's being passed along is actually being taught by people who really want to help people? Sometimes there's some twist in there. Sometimes people want to have a ministry that keeps you needy, makes you have to keep coming back to them. That's just insecurity, right? That's saying, I want to make sure that you need me. Paul was actually upset with the church at Corinth when they still needed him. He said, by now, you guys should be teachers. By now, you should be eating meat, but I have to give you milk. What was he saying? He's saying, by now, you shouldn't need what's been processed through me for you to live. It's okay to have milk as a supplement, something processed through someone. Look, if you come here once a week and all you get is what has been processed through me and you're trying to live on that, you're not going to grow very much. You're not going to be very mature. Go out Monday through Saturday and get meat, which means you discover something from the Lord. You take it. You internalize it. And now you actually have something to give to other people. You're no longer like a baby bird walking around hoping mom has a worm for it. When you're first born again, when you're a spiritual infant, sure, you need milk. But Paul said to them, listen, there was a time, maybe that was okay. He said, by now you guys should be doing this. What's he saying? He's saying, by now you shouldn't need me for everything. Why? Because Paul's a secure leader. He's not worried that you going out and studying the scripture Monday through Saturday is going to mean you don't come here on Sunday. I'm not afraid that if you go out and study the scripture for yourself, you're going to say, well, we don't need to go to church on Sunday. The more you study the scripture, the more you'll want to be here to worship with other saints. And you'll see that maybe you actually come and bring something and you add something. And maybe there's a chance that God wants to use you to minister to somebody. It's not going to lead you to this way. I have no fear that you studying the scripture Monday through Saturday and eating meat is going to make you say, well, you're not going to come here on Sunday. I don't want you to be needful of me. We all need each other in a general sense that we're created and knit together to be a body. But this thing is not about me. It's not about keeping you needy. But people will do these things. Sometimes there's that twist in there that wants to keep you needy. But most of the time, it's people with a good heart that want to help people that have a lack of knowledge. And so the traditions of man make the word of God of no avail. And so, so there's things like, um, I've talked about this before. Here's a real simple one that everybody's heard of. How many of you guys have ever heard of generational curses? How many of you guys? Yeah, come on, put your hands up real quick. It's okay. It's not a sin to hear about them. But what's not? But but here's the thing. So so the strength of the of the teaching of generational curses 
comes from verses from the Old Testament that say, and the sins of the father we pass down for the third and fourth generation. There's two different places it talks about that. I, the Lord, and visit the iniquities of the fathers upon the third and fourth generation. And this was true in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. But then Jesus came along. And it said, he became the curse of the law. What was the generational curse that was passed down from generation to generation based on? The law, the breaking of the law, the sin of the father. Jesus said, it said, he came and became the curse on our behalf, for it is written, cursed is every man who hangs upon a tree. So then Jesus, if that wasn't enough to take care of that belief, Jesus is talking to people and he's saying to them, call God your father. When you pray, pray like this, our father father who is in heaven he's talking to people and he says no call no earthly man your father for you have one who is your father he's in heaven so if the curse on my life comes from my father how many curses are coming my way if jesus said that my father is a born-again believer is one who is in heaven Come on, that stuff falls apart when you hold it up to the lens of scripture and you take the new covenant and the promises of god and you apply it to it But you know what it does? It gives us a reason to look back and find out what's wrong with me because of somebody else. And it always feels good to say, well, I'm this way because somebody else. No, you're that way. You may have been exposed to it because of somebody else, but I promise you this. If what you were exposed to by somebody is more powerful than what you've been exposed to by the truth of the gospel, you need a different gospel. You need a new gospel. I'm telling you, it's the truth. You can be set free in a moment from a generational... And here's what happens, though, is when we put our faith in something and agree with it, there's power in agreement. And so all of a sudden, someone comes along and says to you, well, you know, you have a generational curse. <gasps> I have a generational curse. Yeah, I think so, if this thing keeps popping up. See, it's, it's not about pointing to Jesus and the freedom that was won at the cross. It's about finding what a man did that makes you the way that you are. Yeah. Let's do some research and start digging in and find out. If you're going on Ancestry.com to try to figure out what's wrong with you, you've lost your grip and your focus on the gospel because the gospel says that if any man be in Christ, he is therefore now a new creation. That means new bloodline. So the answer to a generational curse isn't to get set free by someone praying something over you. It's to actually get born again and become a new creation and say that I have one who is my father and he's in heaven. but that doesn't make you need me. Awesome. Because it runs you straight to him and he's who you need because he's the answer to every problem. Every problem. But this is what happens sometimes is is we find these things that, and, and we find our ministry in these things and we start finding our identity in ministry rather than in him and when, what we can do for people. And it feels good to see people. And here's the thing. is So this is what happens. So someone comes along and tells you, ah, you have a generational curse and ah, I have a generational curse. You empower this thing in your life. And then they say, well, you have to do this, this, and this. And all of a sudden there's this placebo effect because they said if I did, this was the problem. And if I did this, so they've built up this straw man. Then they hand me a fake sword and I chopped the head off a straw man. That wasn't the problem to begin with. And I feel good but that problem keeps coming back because the answer isn't to find out what a man did wrong. It's to find out what Jesus did right. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Listen to me. And I'm not saying this to be mean. I'm not trying to pick a fight. I'm saying this stuff has destroyed people's lives for far too long. And it's perpetuated over and over again. And the traditions of man make the word of God to no avail. You find one thing about a generational curse in the new covenant. You won't find it. You'll find all kinds of things talking about being a new creation. If any man be in Christ. If you're in Christ, then that would mean your generational curse is too. 
how's that thing going to exist in him? If it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in Christ, then that means that if it's really him that's alive in me and me alive in him, how much room is there for a curse in that place? Only what I give it. Only what I give it. The only authority it has in your life is the authority that you give it, and it will take every ounce of authority that you offer it. Uh, you, you guys think that's weird, the whole looking things up on Ancestry.com? I'm telling you right now, there's people out there who have genuinely thought they have to figure out their ancestors' beliefs and problems and rituals, and they say things like, well, this person was involved in this, and that person was involved in that, and because of that, I have this. And what does any of that have to do with Jesus? How does any of that equate to me being... Now, listen, you can be exposed to things. You can have a familiar spirit, something that you grew up around, and because you were exposed to it and it became normal, you allowed it a place in your life. But the answer to that isn't to go back and forgive your dad. The answer to that is to go back and get born again and realize that your dad was only reproducing what was shown to him, and it's time somebody in the family line actually gets set free so they can go back and bring freedom to people. And now all of a sudden, the people are the, are, are the goal. They're not the problem. They're a victim. They're not a villain. They were a broken vessel giving you what was breaking them. If they knew better, they wouldn't do what they did. So maybe you need to get born again and see the power of the gospel in your life so that you actually have something that's worth giving because freely you receive, now freely you go and give. I don't even remember where I was going. No, that's where I was going because it's perfect. It's what God wanted said. Yeah. I can't get it wrong as long as I keep looking to him. I may not know where I'm at, but he does. And the guys in the back are going, why'd you give us these scriptures? This is for practice, Stan. I want to do this real quick. Who here has ever believed the lie and maybe even struggled coming into this house today with thinking that you had some kind of a curse on your life because of ancestors or because of sins of the father or because of things that were passed down? from generation to generation. Is there anyone here bold enough to say that they, that they believe? Yeah, why don't you stand up where you are? Go ahead. I mean, here's the thing. There's no magic prayer that's going to deliver you from that. There's only truth. And, and I'm not, I promise you, I promise you, I'm not trying to cherry pick verses to make you think this. If, Jesus, if Paul wrote, if any man be in Christ, he is therefore now a new creation. Behold, all things have passed away. Would that even mean the things that your dad did wrong? I think all things would probably include that. And all things have been made new. Do you, you think when God remade you a new creation, that he said, you know, I'm, I'm going to remake them new. I'm going to put a little curse in there too. No, no, of course he wouldn't do that. So the only place and the only authority that thing has in your life is what you've given it. You've empowered it because you've been influenced by it. And so you open your heart up to it. And you say, well, there's a, there's a curse on my life. And now all of a sudden, you give permission for a curse in your life. God didn't give it permission to be there. He recreated you a new creation. Yeah. He spilled the blood of his son. He said, cursed is everyone. He said he became the curse of the law. You realize every single generational curse passage that's used is based on the breaking of the law. That's why it's called a curse of the law. And you realize that he said he became the curse of the law on our behalf, meaning every curse that was coming your way because of sin, he took on himself. For cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. And then he said to you, call no earthly man your father, for you have one who is your father, and he's in heaven. So if you're going to accept generational curses into your life because of the sin of your father, and you have one who is your father, how many curses are coming your way? Yeah. 
How about this? How about even in the Old Covenant it said that his kindness and his, and his, um, and his kindness is a thousand generations to them that love him. Yeah. You can go back three or four generations and find somebody that did something wrong, but I bet within a thousand generations you could go back and find somebody who actually loved him. Why would we give more power to the curse than we did to the promise, even if we're going to live under the Old Covenant, which we don't? Because sometimes it either feels good to blame somebody else or somebody had a ministry that was based on me believing this. This is the truth. Because it can't be found in Christ. You realize that there's not one verse in the New Covenant that teaches us how to be free from generational curses? If they're so rampant and such a problem, why didn't God think to mention it? He did. He said he became the curse on our behalf. For cursed is every man who hangs upon a tree. So this is what you need. There's not a magic prayer. It's truth. It's truth that makes you free. It's not you coming every week and me just exploring and digging up and trying to figure out what was wrong with a dead man to figure out what's wrong with a live man. No, there's nothing wrong with you if you're born again in Christ. You've actually been recreated in his image, but that stuff's trying to find its way back in. It'll use anything that you give it to convince you that there's a problem. And Jesus is trying as best he can to convince you that you're actually righteous, holy, blameless, filled with his spirit. He even said, what could Baal have to do with God? What could light have to do with darkness? He said, if your eye is single, meaning what? If your focus is on Jesus and he's the answer for everything, then your whole body's flooded with light. In other words, if what you're looking at is him, then what's filling you is him. You have to take your eyes off of him and put them on something else to allow something else to have a place in you. The answer isn't to figure out what had a place and kick it out because of what your dad did wrong or grandfather did wrong. It's to put your eyes back on him and let the light flood so the darkness has to go. It's not even a competition. You've never flicked a light switch in a dark room and the, and the, and, and the light start to come on and the darkness overwhelm it. Darkness flees when light comes. Period. It has to. So I'm just going to pray this for you guys. It's not a magic prayer to be set free. I'm, I'm, are you guys born again? Everyone that's standing up? Yeah? Yeah. Okay, cool. So then this is true about you. He became the curse of the law on your behalf. There may have been curses that were coming because of the sins of the father being passed down for three to four generations. That's true. There may have been. But when you got born again, you actually stepped into the grace that was won for you on the tree of Calvary rather than the family tree that you were born into. you got a new bloodline. Everything passed away, and behold, all things have been made new. All things, even the things that you thought were cursed. It has no power over you. It has no authority over you because you're under the authority of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So when that voice tries to raise itself up and convince you that you're this way because of a curse or because that's what people in our family do, have done, whatever that case is, it's nonsense. And it's just a vain imagination that's exalting itself against the knowledge of God. And those things we take authority over and we take to captivity. That's spiritual warfare. It's out there trying to get in. It can only come in if you let it. So God, I just pray right now for these people that are standing, these men. God, that not one more moment of their life would be robbed believing that they're under a curse. God, that not one more second would be wasted living in fear of something that Jesus triumphed over when he hung upon a tree. That they would see you as father and they would believe what Jesus said. That they wouldn't call their earthly father, father, but believe that they have one who is their father and he is in heaven. And as for him, his ways are perfect. 
I thank you for this truth coming and destroying every single lie that's been believed. I thank you, God, that they've been inside a cage with a key stuck in the lock. And that today, truth comes and exposes that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I love you guys. Thanks for being brave enough to stand up and take that. I'm just going to close with that. Um, and, and next week, we'll get to what I had prepared, I think. Um, that's the plan anyways. Listen, it's okay to have a plan. It's all, just make sure that your plan is subject to God. I said this first service. I'm going to talk about this for one second. Being filled with the Spirit doesn't mean flaky, unpredictable, or unable in, to follow a plan. In fact, do you realize the very first people that were filled with the Spirit were actually filled because God gave a plan and they needed to be filled with the Spirit to follow it? It's in your Bible. It's in mine. In Exodus, he gives Moses these instructions. He says, you shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side, there shall be hangings for the court of fine twisted linen, 100 cubit longs for one side, and its pillars shall be 20 with their 20 sockets of bronze. The hooks of the pillars and the bands shall be made of silver. Likewise, for the north side length, there shall be hangings of 100 cubits longs and its 20 pillars with their bronze sockets. And the hooks of the pillars and the bands shall all be of silver. For the width of the cord on the west side shall be hangings of 50 cubits with their 10 pillars, their 10 sockets. He goes on and on and on. He gives him instructions about the wood to make the ark from and what to cover the wood with and what to cover the covering of the wood with. He's detailed sometimes. He has no problem giving you a plan. It doesn't make you any less spirit-filled because he's actually given you a plan for your life. But check this out. That doesn't exclude the need for the Holy Spirit because then a little while later, a few chapters ahead, he's talking to Moses. It was the first time it's mentioned, someone filled with the Spirit. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship to make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and in bronze, and the cutting of stones and settings, and in the carving of wood, that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. And behold, I myself have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahishamech of the tribe of Dan, and in the hearts of all who are skillful, I have put skill that they may make you all that I've commanded you. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, just because I told you what I wanted doesn't mean that you're capable of doing it without my spirit. He said, I've filled them with my spirit so that they can do these things, so that they may make everything I've commanded you. Being filled with the spirit doesn't mean that you don't ever have a plan and you just actually, you listen, speaking in tongues that should never be a substitute for being a committed person who follows the voice of the Lord. I know people who, who, who don't even walk in the gifts of the spirit that have showed up for 40 years every week and drove a bus to bring kids to a class to learn about Jesus. I promise you, God's not going to take a substitute of saying, well, I speak in tongues, so I don't have to be committed like that. No, the more filled with the Spirit you are, the more you should be like the one who filled you with the Spirit. And I promise you, he did everything that he said he would do. I promise you, he was a man who had habits. And Jesus, as was his habit, arose and went to the synagogue on the Sabbath to read. One doesn't negate the other. One requires the other. And if the plan that you have for your life isn't big enough that you need the Spirit of God to fill you, it may not be God's plan for your life. Because when he said, oh, this is what I want you to build, he said, oh, and by the way, I'm going to fill some people with the Spirit of God so that they can actually do the thing that I've instructed. Because apart from that, they could never do the thing I've asked them to do. Flaky is not a fruit of the Spirit. Don't quote that verse that says, the wind comes and goes, and no one knows where it comes from. So it is with those who are blown, born of the Spirit. That is not saying that people who are born... Do you see how my voice changed when I did that? I should have done that like five minutes ago and really brought the punchline home when we were talking about generational curses. Silly me. But 
that verse is not saying that people who are born of the Spirit are unpredictable, undependable, and flaky people who just kind of go wherever they want to. He's saying, you, don't, you look out and you see a tree and you see it moving, you know there's wind. You don't know where the wind came from, but you can see the effect of wind. That's how you know it's there. He's saying, listen, those who are filled with the Spirit, you may not see it, but you'll see it in their life because you'll see the fruit of it in their life. When someone's filled with the Spirit, you'll actually see evidence. When there's wind blowing on a tree, you'll see evidence by the tree moving. You may not know where it came from and you may not know where it's going, but you can see when it's there. And he's saying the same thing with the Spirit of God. He's saying, listen, it may not be something that you can tangibly see when it comes upon somebody, but boy, you can see it because the evidence will be seen in their life. It's not about being a flaky. In fact, it talks about being blown about by the wind in James. It's not really a good thing. It talks about us being anchored like oaks of righteousness that are not easily tossed. His roots go down deep. A drink from the deep wells. And in a time of drought, their leaves won't wither and they'll still bear fruit. God, I just thank you for that. I thank you for your truth. I, I just, God, I love when you just come and speak what's on your heart like this and we just have the freedom as a body to go where you want us to go. I pray, God, that you, if you ever stop that, I'll stop, Father. I thank you that we can gather with a plan, God, but we always trust you and go where you call us to go. I just thank you for the freedom that's come to people, God, the ones who stood and maybe some people who didn't stand, Father, that we would in all our, in all our getting get understanding, God, that we would actually understand what the Scripture says before we allow something in our lives. I thank you for that in Jesus' name. I pray when the enemy comes to try to snatch this word, that they see him for who he is and they can stand and declare to him, it's too late. There's already roots and I think I see acorns starting to pop. In Jesus' name, amen.